0: inform me that he has not yet soundproofed that room so it's going to be an interesting service (laughs) nice okay and at this time we're going to stand so we can read the Word of God please. our reading is going to be from Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 through 18 if you have a Bible please follow along If you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screens. And the word of God says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in accordance to fulfill his good purpose. I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So too, you should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. Please stand uh, while we pray for the service. Lord God, thank you. Help us to always remember to follow your will without grumbling or arguing or complaining as we always usually do. Lord, help us to hear your word spoken through your servant, Kyle. Lord, help us to take this in and glorify you now and always amen
1: amen thank you you may be seated thank you i just want to ask um if we could just um if you could join me in prayer one more time uh for um just for jim um who is the father-in-law of robin right so he's your father-in-law yeah and um he's just uh recently went into hospice so it's just looking like um it's not looking good for him so we're just going to pray for him, just for his family and health, if you join me, please. God, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you, God, that you, um, that you created us and that you love us. I pray for Jim. Um, I pray, God, that if it um, be your will and purpose, that you would heal him. Um, most importantly, God, we ask you, Lord, that he would come to know Jesus, if he doesn't already. God, that he would understand how, how wonderful and beautiful Christ is. We love you, Lord, and ask for the, a blessing on the family and and just peace in their hearts. And God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going through, at our church, we're going through the book of Philippians, um, which is a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul. If maybe some of you might be kind of new to this if you're a guest here. Um, the New Testament was written by various authors, and um, much of it was, was, uh, made up, is made up of letters written by um, the Apostle Paul and others, and Peter and James and whatnot. Um, but we're going through this study called Rejoice Evermore. Because we kind of sense this need in our own hearts um, to rejoice. Life oftentimes has um, just harrowing events and trials and circumstances that cause us at times to just sink low and break under the pressure of life. But amidst all this, God tells us to rejoice. And what we learn in our our looking at this letter to the Philippians is the source, the reason, the power for rejoicing. So we approach chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, um, and um, the title of our sermon is Because He Sat Down. I want to direct you to another place in the Bible, another letter, um, the uh, letter to, he- to the Hebrews in chapter 1. It says this about Jesus. Imagine this. Now some of you might believe in Jesus this morning and have trusted Him as Lord and Savior. Others might be skeptical about what that even means. But listen to the testimony of what the Bible says about who Jesus is. The Son, Christ, is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided the purification for sins... Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name as he is inherited is superior to theirs. Now that is a mouthful, an amazing testimony of the identity of Christ. And it identifies a man, Jesus Christ. He sat down. This one who existed in the form of God humiliated himself, by shedding that divine right and becoming a man, and then as a man humiliating himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, and death on a cross carried the curse of sin for us. This downward humiliation of Jesus is recorded in Scripture as the foundation, the basis for which he was exalted by the Father. He was resurrected, ascended, and given a name, that is above every name. Amen? He sat down, the one that was humiliated, sat down, given a name above all. This one that we read in Hebrews 1 is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his being. In other words, he is God himself in the flesh. He sustains all things by his powerful word. The reason that my eyes continue to see and that my heart continues to pump and that gravity continues to work is because he is sustaining even natural law by his powerful word he who had provided the purification for sin redemption for you and i this is the one that sat down at the right hand of the father now last week we commented a little bit you if you weren't here last week we commented a little bit on the glory the exaltation of Christ because of the work that he did for us. We said that he sat down at the right hand of God, that it's an indication that his work was both perfect and finished. So because he sits, there isn't another sacrifice that we need to make for sin. We're not here this morning because we're trying to get God to forgive us. We're here because he has forgiven us. Right? It's done. It's complete. The work of Christ is both perfect and finished and the work of Christ is complete and freely received by grace through faith. If Jesus did the work to forgive my sins, that means that I am forgiven as a gift and not as a restless striving. For by grace you have been saved through faith in Christ. Wow. Okay. Now what? So if you've come to a point in your life where you've trusted in Jesus and been enamored by this wonderful grace and gift of Jesus and have understood the exalted position and what that means for you, now what? What does that mean for us as Christians, as people who believe in Jesus? Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. You might not know who this is. Um, He's kind of an obscure figure from hundreds of years ago, but he's a very popular Puritan pastor. He says this, I have, a deep convic- I have had a deep conviction for many years that practical holiness and entire self-consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to by modern Christians in this country. Politics or controversy or a party spirit or worldliness have eaten out the heart of lively piety and too many of us. He's talking to the church now. The subject of personal godliness has fallen sadly into the background. The standard of holy living has become painfully low in many quarters. The immense importance of adorning, quote in Titus 2.10, adorning the doctrine of God our Savior and making it lovely and beautiful by our daily habits and tempers has been overlooked sound doctrine is useless if it is not accompanied by a holy life you can know all the right things about god you can get an a on the test but at the end of the day we need to look like jesus if we indeed are his Sound doctrine is useless if it is not accompanied by a holy life. It's worse than useless. It does positive harm. It is despised by keen-sighted and shrewd men of this world as an unreal and hollow thing and brings religion into contempt. See what he's saying? It is my firm impression that we want in the church a thorough revival of scriptural holiness. Holiness, friends, Christ's likeness to be like Jesus, is the only proper response to all that he's done for us. Set apart for good works, that's how the Apostle Paul said it in another place in the New Testament. Now, I know that it's easy to get washed away into politics. Sit, stand, or kneel, right? to become more passionate about controversy or party spirits, as Ryle put it. Now, I know, of course, that we need to listen. Sometimes we need to speak up. And sometimes we need to even engage in certain issues of social injustice. But how sad is it for the church to see how quickly that sometimes we as God's people flagrantly and easily, so easily just disobey his word, Something else becomes more important than being like our beautiful Jesus. His word is not intended to burden you, friend. Church, his word. Do you believe that? That the word of God, the instruction that he gives us to walk with him and to be like him, that's not intended to burden you. That's intended to liberate you. To give you joy that you've never known before. C.S. Lewis said, we're, we're far too easily pleased. We think that a sexual endeavor or some kind of impurity will give us joy or pleasure. We're far too easily pleased, Lewis said. So the pleasure that we can get at the right hand of the Father in Psalm 18 is beyond comparison. It's beyond what anything that this world can offer us. So this sermon is about Christ's likeness It's not about politics. You know, the, the title of the sermon might... Might have thought you, but led you to believe that, but it's not. It's about Christ likeness. It's about being like beautiful Jesus. Amen? The world, friends, and even the church, the believers of believers in Jesus Christ, we don't need the church to be more innovative. We don't need the church to be more savvy or wealthy. We don't need large churches, and we don't need small churches. We don't need relevant churches. We don't need electrifying, charismatic preachers, or, or rock worship bands, or social media, or cutting-edge websites. Now, I'm not saying those things are wrong to have. I'm just saying that it's not what we need to have. What we need to have is holiness. Holiness. Christ-likeness in our character as believers in Jesus Christ. Our neighbors need us to be holy. They don't need us to have clean rugs. (laughs) We just bought a rug, for those of you who don't know that. And we're all like, what if someone spills something on it? We don't need to have clean rugs. We need to have clean hearts. Holiness. We could be meeting in the basement of a you know, a dirty dungeon. And if Christ be present and Christ be glorified and Christ be proclaimed and his people love him and are pure, it doesn't matter where you are. What matters is that. So our neighbors need holiness. The church needs holiness. We can be smart and we can be slick and we can be cutting edge. And again, we think about those things sometimes too. We don't have church at four in the morning because we want people to come. So it's okay to think about those things. But we can't ignore or justify or overlook gossip and division and partying and all these things. Hiding in addictions and adulteries. We need holiness, friends. Now I'm not trying to burden you with condemnation either. If you're a believer in Christ and you've fallen and if you've failed... This is not about there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is gone. It is separated as far as the East is. Many good Christians fall and are weak and have confessed that weakness and are accountable and are working it out. So I'm not trying to burden us by by looking down my nose of good grief. I, I need to hear this myself. We just need to have our passions directed towards Christ. And we need to be reminded of this. It might be a hard way to start a sermon, but I hope by the end of this message you might be moved not to guilt and shame, because we know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but rather moved to, quote, entire self-consecration to God as believers in Christ. To make the doctrine of God and our Savior lovely by adorning it in our daily habits and tempers. Making it lovely to the people around us. Because he sat down, we have the power and privilege to be holy, to be like Jesus. We're liberated. Our sins are gone. Because he's sitting, our sins are gone. Because he conquered sin and death and was exalted, um, given a name above every name, we have the opportunity to be like him. So let's seize that opportunity. We want a thorough revival of scriptural holiness in our church. And such is the subject of our present text in Philippians 2. God the Father reacts to the work of Jesus. He approves him. He exalts him. And all believers in Christ must react to the work of Jesus too. And what is the worthy response to the humiliation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus for the Christian? If, If you're not a Christian, a worthy response to what Jesus has done is to turn to him and depend on him. Trust in Him by grace through faith. Recognize that there is a God in heaven that loves you. And that the moment you turn to Him for forgiveness, He'll give it to you. Jesus bore the curse of sin so that sinners like us won't have to. Turn to Him and trust Him. If you trust Him already, what is the the proper response for us? We're told in our text that Christ-likeness, the church mimicking, imitating the person of Jesus is our chief aim as the church. And I want to identify three directives in the path towards Christ-likeness in this text. The first one is work in, work out. The second one is the lantern holds fast and forth. And the third one is the prize. Work in, work out. The lantern holds fast and forth in the prize. Let's look at the work in, work out. It says, verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends... As, if, as, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Let's talk about this, because this is important. It's a thesis statement for Christians who desire to be like Jesus and live a holy life. And it's vital because in verses 14 through 16, there's sort of various directives, things that we need to do and not do, that we see kind of unpacked in this. So this is important because if we see the Christian life simply as do this and don't do that, it could be crushing to us. Because we know how often we fall short. So we have to understand this work in and work out. And I hope by the end you will. There is a balance of being versus doing in the Christian life. Do this. In other words, Scripture. when Scripture commands a, a Christian to behave a certain way, it's, it's saying do this because you are this. You follow? You are this, so do this. Paul says in Ephesians 4, walk worthy of the call with which you have been called. Walk worthy of the call which you have have been called. In other words, you are in Christ. You are holy. So walk worthy of the holiness that you have. You see? This isn't a striving to get God to be impressed with us. This is to be who we are, who he's made us to be as Christians. Sons, forgiven, right? Without sin, pure. We are those things already. So holiness in the Christian life isn't a striving to become something that we're not already. It is a striving to be more like who we are actually. You see? Cuz God has set it to be so. So there is a balance of being versus doing in the Christian life. Behave like this because you are this already. We are to strive to act a certain way because that way is already true of us. So our aim isn't to prove ourselves, but to reveal our true and new self in Christ. Isn't that great? So if I fail, God doesn't say, oh, you're out. You are that already. One author put it like this. Growing in the likeness of Christ is a blend of rest and activity. At one and the same moment, the Christian is both resting confidently on what God is doing within and actively pursuing, for example, the duty of being blameless. You see, what does the text say? It is God who works in you to will and to act. So we need to work out, work out, work in. And what does that look like? There is a very basic inscription on all believers, and that is obey. The working out of our salvation is simple acquiescence, obedience, proximity to the Lord's will for our lives, to look like Jesus. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, it says. So the, the impetus on Christians is to obey God, to obey his word. That which we're working out as believers is a more consistent and a more steadied obedience to the Lord and his word. So we're to be marked by obedience to his will and to his word, not disobedience and rebellion. Sin and apathy should not be the norm and commitment and obedience a hiccup. It should be the opposite. Commitment and obedience in the Christian life should mark the believer and sin be the hiccup. Jesus took his obedience as far as death, didn't he? We learned that in the, in the weeks prior, that he was obedient even to the point of death. And it is the believer's responsibility to do the same, to sacrifice our own desires so that we could live for Christ and have new desires, to be formed in every way with the mind of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. You say, well, this is hard. You know, you know this doesn't feel like you know, I should be able to do what I want, right? How's that going for you? How's your mind going for you? <laughs> like I don't mean to be tough on you, but please understand, I got a mind too, believe it or not. <laughs> it doesn't go well for me. I know the, the, the struggle. I, I know, I know the, the, the tension and the anxiety and the, the, you know, the victories and the failures and the, and the, that life brings at times. I need a new mind, and I know that. And if we're honest, you'll all know that too. You need the mind of Christ. That's what's missing in your life. You don't know Jesus. You need the mind of Christ. So Jesus took obedience as far as death, and it's our responsibility to do the same, to work this out in our lives, to lay hold of grace. We need to make choices daily to obey and not disobey the Lord, not because we're trying to impress him, but because we want to be by his side. we're told to do this by the way in our text with fear and trembling isn't that interesting because as americans we don't like those words you know we don't we don't want to be afraid of dad right if that's that's a dysfunctional relationship if you're afraid of dad we all kind of know this but try to understand that there's a different context a different cultural context that these words are being used in it's not a fear of what god might do to us if we mess up it's a, it's a fear of almost like disappointing a good dad that loves you it's introducing something into the relationship that will create conflict in that relationship and because you value that relationship so much you want to avoid that and and any of us who are in healthy marriages know what i mean we don't see it as a burden to be faithful to us. i can't believe i can't you know just sleep around my stinking wife she doesn't let me we don't do that. You know, like, we don't, we don't do that in our marriages, do we? Because we understand the great value of that relationship. In a healthy marriage, those rules are liberating and empowering, aren't they? So for some reason, when we approach God's rules, we say, oh, what a tyrant in heaven. Right, we, we, we seem to think, I think they're shut off. Hold on. <laughs> the battery died. <clears throat> We seem to think that somehow God is just trying to make our lives difficult with rules. But as a matter of fact, it's, not, it's just the opposite. The reason that there are those rules is to make our relationship with him glorious. Just like in our relationship with, in relationships with each other, there are rules. So we approach God with fear and troubling, not in the sense that we're afraid that he's going to judge us forever in hell. With, as Christians, we know that that can't happen. It's more of respect for who he is, respect for the relationship itself. And here is the outward call for us. Here's what we're called to do, to be increasingly devoted and have an increased affection for God who saved us in Christ. That's the person work. That's our part. That's the working out. But there's also the in-work, the God-work. The power and presence. He provides every believer to do this. Now this is, oh, it's fantastic. Please listen. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will. Wow. Can you, can you just picture that? When you decide, I'm going to pray today because I love God. God worked in you to will that. God's power is in you renewing your affections, giving you a positive posture towards His purpose for you. God gave that to you. That's why we can't boast in this. Because the reason I even love God to begin with is because He empowered me to love Him. Wow. Now you say, well, that sounds a little weird. I don't understand that. But notice the power of this as we'll continue. He is the one that gives us eyes to see. He is the one that awakens our dead spirits, our misplaced passions. And our will simply just responds to what He is doing in us in the first place. So that means that if you belong to Him, friend, He is at work in you. And isn't it great to know that our God in heaven isn't busy creating new species of animals on Mars, right? New forms of DNA. God's work in us, in his people, is to create in us an affection for him. To hold you, to keep you, to perfect you. And if you belong to Jesus, you'll know that there is that in you. You don't know why it's there, but it just doesn't go away, does it? As much as you kick against it, as much as the Christian life can be tough sometimes, and you try to run away from it, you can't. Because it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. His work of forming Christ in you will prevail. That's the promise in this text. Dr. Mottier writes this. He cannot be deflected from his course, nor fail to achieve his purpose. With our daily catalog of failure and our not infrequent despair of ourselves, what unspeakable comfort lies in this truth. Amen? He cannot be deflected. His course will not fail to achieve its purpose in you. And as weak and as changing as I know I can be, how great a promise is that, that he is at work in me and in you. God never stops working on his people. His work is effective in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Amen. And that's God's promise to transform your desires, your will, and your actions, if indeed you are in Christ. And why does he do this for us? Why does God love us like this? Why does God want us like this? Well, for his, the text says, for his good purpose. That's really not an answer. Because I said so. Right? For his good, for, or actually, for, for his good pleasure. God gets pleasure in doing this. But why? It's sheer grace. He doesn't do this for smart ones. He doesn't do this for good-looking ones or rich ones. He does this because he does it. Because he he loves you because he loves you. Now that's bewildering, but listen to this. Moses said the exact same thing about Israel. The Lord did not set his affection on you, his love for you. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, because you had lots of money and military prowess. Nope. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you that he chose you. Now let's just skip a few of those those verses in there and just say it again. The Lord did not set his affection on you because you were numerous. He set his affection on you because he loved you. Now that's that's a non-answer. Why did the Lord love Israel? The Lord did not love you because you were numerous. The Lord loved you because he loved you. It's a non-answer. The Lord loved you because he loved you, because he is love. We don't have to dance for him or spin for him or do cartwheels for him or to make lots of money for him. He loves you because he loves you. Oh, friends, believe that this morning and you'll understand what Lewis meant. We are far too easily pleased. Because if you're trying to prove yourself or define yourself by some kind of sexual relationship or even a good thing, a marriage, oh, you'll you'll find real soon that you're going to fall short. You need someone that loves you because they love you. And that person is God in heaven. He loves you because he loves you. It's no explanation at all, but it's the greatest explanation of all. Okay, work in, work out. I need to work out in a different way. (laughs) The lantern holds fast and forth. The lantern holds, number two, the lantern holds fast and the lantern holds forth. It's quite shocking me when I read in verse 14 do everything without grumbling or arguing in other words Paul is telling us God is telling us that the point of the Christian life is to always submit to God's will for us (laughs) come on I don't mean to sound irreverent but doesn't that just like what I don't do that Like, is that even possible? Friends, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Here's the point. It's not to shame us because we failed. It's to spur us on to be what we think is impossible. It's not impossible to have a steady and growing commitment to God's purpose for us. For sin that we thought would never, we'd always have following us around, we'd always fall prey to, for us to one day be free of it. You know, you don't have to look at pornography anymore. You're not a slave to that. You're not a slave to some old relationship that you can't get over. Because there's a better boyfriend, a better girlfriend, a better husband, a better wife that loves you more than them. And you need more than that. Friend, it's possible to do this do everything without grumbling or arguing, to grow in Christ-likeness, to have victory in ways we never thought possible. Because God is working in us, making us new creatures, we are his children, we are partakers of his divine nature, we are new creatures with a new nature, we are these things. And because we are these things, we have the Spirit of God working in us so that we can not, so that it is possible for us to not grumble against his word. Isn't that great? The lantern holds fast. And what do I mean by that? Light has two components in, this, in the illustration I'm trying to use here. It's got two com- The The light, light is something in itself. The light has a nature. The light is something. But light also does something, doesn't it? Light is something and it does something. So that's what I mean by holds fast. It's what we are by nature. It's who we are to be, so to speak. So that you may become blameless and pure. So the reason that we do everything without grumbling or arguing is so that we can become blameless and pure. So as lights, as Christians... We are to look blame, we are to be blameless and be pure in our actions. And that demonstrates itself in the fact that we do not grumble or argue. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault. You are already children of God without fault. In a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So by holding fast, this is what I mean: you look like Jesus. It's the holy life. It doesn't grumble or question. And what does this mean? Grumbling is an impatience towards God for what he has called us to do. You guys know what grumbling is, right? (sighs) I'll do it, but I don't want to do it. That's like what uh, our heart grumbles, right? And it's our mouth that questions. An aggravation towards some directive that God has for our lives. A bitter acquiescence. We're kind of angry about it. And questioning is the the outward act that questions God. Really, does He really want me to do this or that? Is that really right? When it's so clear what He's telling us in His Word and in our hearts, we start to question. But when the posture of our hearts is positive towards God and His will is delight in our hearts the natural consequence is we become blameless. We, we start to live a pure life because it, we start to be who we are. It just starts to shine. And that's the lantern holding forth. What holiness does in the believer's life is it demonstrates the goodness of God to people around us. It shines its power on people looking at us. You know, I'll tell you what, there's no bigger turnoff to an unbelieving person that doesn't know Christ yet, to a bitter and angry and fighting church? Why would they come? You know, you know the, the, the solution to that is not to pretend. Right? Hey, you know, I'm not mad, right? <laughs> Let's just all pretend that we don't hate each other's guts so that people get saved. That's not the solution. The solution is to be transformed by the gospel, to repent to each other, to forgive each other. You see? Then the lantern holds forth. Light does what it has, to, excuse me, light does what it has to do by being what it ought to be. You cannot make light not shine. So we need to shine, friends. Responsibility quote for the world around outreach, making an impact, telling others about Jesus, these thoughts are only entertained only after he has laid the foundation of Christian personal holiness. Like the light, we must be if we are to do. Does that make sense? That's why I say in the beginning, it's more important, it's more important for us to be holy than to have good ideas. Because we can have great ideas. We'll reach our neighbors and our friends through trunk-or-treats and clean carpets and all these things. And we do them. But friends, if we're not paying attention to the quality of our own hearts, our posture towards God, then what's it worth? It's worth less. It's not going to work. We need to be lights, friends. The lantern holds forth. Finally, let's look at the prize of holiness. The third the prize of holiness. Being like Christ. The Christian life is the life of being first and then doing. I hope that makes sense and that you understand that by now. God working in us first, we working out and abiding in Christ leading to effectual mission. Right? But the greatest prize of all is not personal happiness now or success in ministry enterprise, it is the completion, it is the finishing of the path of Christ's likeness, the purpose for which God has saved you and I, if indeed you are saved. And that is when He comes, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. That's the end product, that's the goal of redemption, that is the purpose of human history. The King is coming. And he will perfect his people once and for all and finally when he returns. That's the goal of your life. It's not to be married, it's not to have children, and it's not to be successful. If you're a Christian, the goal of your life is to be united and wed to Christ in perfect holiness. That's the prize. And then... I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain. See? On the day of Christ, this forward-looking, the purpose for which we were saved, the reason by which we are to be like Christ as His people is because the day of Christ is upon us. Jesus is coming back. And that's what matters. So you too, be glad and rejoice with me that's what it says but even if i am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith i am glad and i rejoice with you all so you too be glad and rejoice with me be glad and rejoice because christ is coming because the savior lives and he sits this moment in heaven, perfecting his people so that he might present to himself his bride without spot or wrinkle. That's the prize. Christ is the prize. Christ, the church, purified, presented to him. That's the end. And it's the beginning. Isn't it? Oh, what are you, are, what are you afraid of this morning? What what are you anxious about? What are you working for? What is the purpose of your life? I hope it's to come to Christ and to know him. Christ is conquered, and he sits enthroned in heaven. And because he sits, we can be like him more fully until he comes. Because he sits, we can stand. Amen. Let's pray. God, we are on holy ground not because of anything useful I said but because of what your word has said. What great love is this that you have done for us, that you would die for sinners, that you would humiliate yourself Take our sin so that sinners like us might share in your glory. God, I pray turn our hearts and our affections towards Christ. God, help us not to fight for our own personal pleasures or whims, but help us to realize that the greatest pleasure is union with Jesus. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that we are saved by grace through faith. Friend, if you don't know Jesus this morning, and this is maybe the first time you've ever heard about a God in heaven who sent his son to die for a sinner like you, because not because he was impressed with you, but because he loves you. If you're tired of putting on a show... then trust in the greatest show, in Jesus. He put it on for you. He lived the perfect life you've fallen short of. Oh, if you don't know Christ, understand this morning that sin is offensive to God. It separates you from Him. But He loves you and sent His Son to die for you to reconcile yourself to Him. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Turn to Him. He's better. Do that right now. Don't be afraid. Cry out to God in prayer. I believe you, God. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. For by grace, through faith, I've been saved. God, thank you for this promise. And thank you, Lord, as a church, as we reflect on where you're bringing us, help us to remember that great prize that you have won for us to be wed to you in heaven. In Christ's name, amen.